Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Tamuquin Ecological and Historic Preserve, home of the Kingsley Plantation and the Fort Caroline National Memorial. The whereabouts of the fort were, were not known then, as they remain unknown now, but generally historians agree that it was in this location, nearby here. We'll discuss the growing number of black history museums in Florida. Many of the recent museums of black history owe their origins to the work of black women of the baby boom generation. And we'll explore endangered historic buildings in downtown Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. If I could save time in a bottle the Tamuquin Ecological and Historic Preserve is home to the Kingsley Plantation, the Fort Caroline National Memorial, and much more. Ben DiBiase, longtime Florida Frontiers contributor and now historian with Paleo West, has this report. This is the um, Castillo de San Marcos collection. You can see lots of nails, spikes, kind of random metal things. Um, got some swords, bayonets. Now, when does um, a lot of this date from? A lot of these materials this is, um, can be, yeah, it can be anything in the last 400 years or so. So there's Spanish, British, American. There's, uh, most of this was archaeology materials found either maybe in the moat or the courtyard during um, planned archaeological projects. This is reportedly Osceola's pencil. Chief Osceola was imprisoned at the Castillo, and he apparently traded that to a visitor for, for something. Nestled under ancient oak trees just 15 miles east of Jacksonville's bustling downtown sits a small, single-story, nondescript building set back from the main road. Although almost indistinguishable from neighboring private homes, this structure houses the largest single collection of documents and artifacts that chronicle Northeast Florida's deep history and prehistory. Over 270,000 items in all. Um, there's a lot of archaeology collections, but includes even this, um, what they call soil samples. So the archaeologists will just collect a couple inches worth of whatever's in the soil, and it includes broken bits of shell, little bits of, you know, roots and bones and soil and dirt and a little bit of everything. So this needs tech, probably needs to get screened and sorted a little down a little better by a grad student or a professional archaeologist. But they, they uncovered thousands of animal bones that the Indians used to use to eat. Um, there's shell, there's broken pottery, there's beads, there's a little bit of everything in here. Anne Llewellyn is museum curator for the Tamuquan Ecological and Historic Preserve and the Fort Caroline National Memorial. She's also curator for both the Fort Matanzas and Castillo de San Marcos National Monuments collections. Every national park 
saves and collects anything that's associated with that park. So usually it's things that are either found on the property through archaeological methods or when the site was transferred to the Park Service or donors will donate things relating to that store, whatever the story, the theme of the park is. So here we obviously don't have anything from the French here in 1562. They did not leave anything. There was no written documents left here on site. Um, we actually only found one piece of pottery even associated with the, with the French, uh, French time period. But we do have lots of um, archaeology projects that have been done since then, and they've found lots of Spanish artifacts and prehistoric artifacts, including the Timucuan Indians and the Indians that lived here before that. So we have lots and lots, we have you know, thousands of archaeology collections, including bones, um, vessel fragments, um, like I said, some more historic stuff from the mission period. We also have then um, history objects that were donated to the park or purchased to tell the story of the French that came here in 1562. And then other big collections, the photographs, slides, and like, a, like we talked about, the documents uh, relating to the actual management of the park. The entire preserve encompasses several historic and prehistoric sites, including the Kingsley Plantation, American Beach, Theodore Roosevelt area, as well as many other sites and preserved natural spaces. But the center of the Timucuan Ecological and Historic Preserve is the Fort Caroline National Memorial, dedicated in the early 1950s as a way to commemorate a brief French Huguenot settlement near the current preserve site. Stephen Kidd is Chief of Science and Resource Management at the Timucuan Ecological and Historic Preserve, and he tells us about the memorial. The whereabouts of the fort were, were not known then as they remain unknown now, but generally historians agree that it was in this location nearby here. So in order to give people, visitors, an insight as to what it would be like to experience the fort, a three-quarter scale model fort was created. Uh, and we have drawings from people who were on site of what the fort looked like. So it was created in that roughly triangular shaped fort. So uh, you have a place where folks can go out and observe the river and, and get a feel for what it would have been like. How the preserve ultimately came to be was the vision of long-serving U.S. congressman representing North Florida, Charles E. Bennett. He wanted to set up some sort of national park that encompassed the American Revolution, the Civil War sites, the Spanish-American War sites, uh, um, all the ecology that's around here with the, where the St. John's River empties in the Atlantic Ocean. We have our salt, salt marshes, um, you know, nurseries for shrimp and fish and all that. So he actually got it established in 1988. He created the Timucuan Preserve with Fort Caroline at its heart, the, the anchor. The, the National Park Service had that presence, but expanded it from a relatively small footprint site to over a 46,000-acre ecological preserve. Of the 46,000, it's a combination of city, state, parks, and private inholdings. We own probably around 13,000 acres outright, and, and the rest is managed through partnerships with those private citizens and the state and local city parks. The establishment of Fort Caroline National Memorial coincided with a substantial expansion in federal spending for national parks around the country, known as the Mission 66 program. As World War II drew to an end and many of the soldiers were coming back and people are buying houses and the automobiles are becoming more affordable, people start taking vacations places. And so Prior to uh, the end of World War II, you know, National Park Services had seen pretty good visitation. But in that period, the post-war era, up until, you know, the mid-50s, visitation was skyrocketing. 
the saying is they were loving the parks to death. So a plan was undertaken in the mid-50s. It was called Mission 66. Uh, so instituted in, in around 1956, uh, a 10-year program to improve the infrastructure, the campgrounds, the circulation, the roads, those types of, of things, of what we refer to as comfort stations or restrooms. The visitor center that I think a lot of people are familiar with when they go to a national park was a creation of Mission 66, uh, a centralized location where a visitor could get out of their car, go in, meet a ranger, get oriented to the site, and get some informational pamphlets, uh, a map, souvenirs. Those types of things were the product of Mission 66. As Kidd explains, the Mission 66 period also marked a departure from the traditional architectural styles in favor of more modernist interpretations of the built environment within these wilderness areas. Previous to Mission 66, if you think about some of the older parks, you, you would think of a lot of materials, earthy materials, rock, wood, those types of heavy hewn timbers, solid of stone masonry. Mission 66, you start seeing a lot more use of steel, glass, and um, a more open feeling. I think, you know, looking at some of the designs that was really following along that international style of architecture where you have uh, more of the flat roofs and, you know, that was greatly influenced by that style of architecture. The program at a national level proved successful and access to parks in places like Florida, which was already seeing a tremendous rise in permanent population and seasonal tourism, greatly increased. It created our visitor center here at the park. The Rabeau Column, an area nearby our headquarters, was also a, a product of, of that era. And with the passage of the Great American Outdoors Act, we're going to be seeing more money come in to, to take care of some of our infrastructure but there are no plans really to uh, have another period of design and construction of, of new facilities. This is more along the lines of taking care of what we have. Another mission of the National Park Service in Jacksonville is the study and preservation of the natural environment in and around the St. Johns River. The salt marsh grasses that are in here, the salt marsh that makes up most of the area of the park, are an important nursery for many species that uh, both the recreational and the commercial fishing industry rely on and maintaining a healthy ecosystem so that those species are successful is a win for, for everyone involved. So we are regularly monitoring the, the health of the preserve through air, water quality monitoring, species monitoring. So those things that would give us an idea of which direction things are going. I feel that with it being in federal ownership, there won't be a lot of um, major developments in that so that the ecosystem can perform its role. Because it's located along the St. Johns River, the preserve has become a bellwether for global fluctuations in climate. You can look at maps of predicted sea level rise, and a lot of that will occur in the preserve. So we're looking at ways that we can absorb some of that and places where the marsh grasses can migrate uh, further inland, if there's not a great change in elevation, uh, if sea levels rise too much, they will drown the grasses. But if they can go inland and up a small amount, then they will remain healthy and performing their vital role and functions. So we're looking at places where, you know, we may prioritize for future protection 
of those types of areas that would allow marsh migration. In this role as a laboratory of sorts, the preserve has become an important site for visiting researchers. Every other year we put on a science and history symposium for researchers who are doing work in the preserve to come and present to the public the findings that, uh, from their research. And it's amazing the number of different scientific studies that are going on in here, everything from gall midges to um, you know, the recovery of the flagship of Rabot. So uh, that's a wonderful opportunity to see the types of not only NPS scientists, but professors from UNF and JU and the University of Florida and Florida State University, and not just in Florida, but other places that come here and want to do research that informs us and helps us manage the resources better, but also get their findings out. The Tamuquin Ecological and Historic Preserve and Fort Caroline National Memorial, although situated in one of the most densely populated metropolitan areas of Florida, are not widely visited as other national parks around the state. Unfortunately, most people don't seem to know much about it, or if they do, it's from their fourth grade trip, field trip here. Well, you run into a lot of people at the store who see your, you see in a uniform, they say, oh, where do you work? And I say, oh, I just work up the street at Fort Caroline. Oh, really? I didn't, didn't know that was there, or I haven't been there since fourth grade. So unfortunately, it is a kind of forgotten story. And we are, like you said, we are tucked away about 10 or 15 miles from downtown. Um, but it's a beautiful site, you know, right in the river, so you can come here and, and walk around and, and get great views of the river and learn a little, bit, a little bit of history history of Jacksonville that you might have forgotten or might have never heard of before. Today, guests usually start their tour at the Fort Caroline Visitor Center. We can provide you with directions to any of the other sites that we manage or any of the more interesting local or state parks. Um, you could have a chance to interact with a ranger to get more of that story. And uh, we can direct you to uh, find out what you're interested in and, and tell you, you know, the best place to go to, to get more information on that or to get that experience. The properties are not only places to share the history and preserve the sites of the past, they're also important centers for ongoing scientific and historic research. Right now we're doing a slave cabin inhabitant study for Kingsley Plantation. So we're going to learn a little more about the slaves and what they were doing there and where they went after the war, after they were emancipated. Um, we're getting money for a study of our Fitzpatrick ruins out at, on Black Hammock Island, a historic structure report on that. Um, we're getting some funding to do some archaeology work in the basement of the Kingsley Plantation main house. I think there's a couple other projects coming up this next couple of years. But yeah, we're, we're, we're constantly getting funding for historic preservation and archaeology work and some studies to see what was happening here. We're finding out more all the time from our archaeological excavations as to the locations of former uh, Indian villages, um, Spanish missions, any number of things like that. So it's just a remarkable area with a deep and rich history and terrific resources. And it's about the best place one could want to be. Although the fort may no longer stand at the ready to repel an attack from the Spanish, the preserve plays another modern defensive role. It is protecting the city of Jacksonville. An intact salt marsh attenuates storm surge. So it's performing an important role there, but also the sequestration of carbon and the, the benefits to the, the fish and the shellfish communities here. So it gives a lot and asks very little. The Tamuquin Ecological and Historic Preserve offers visitors a glimpse back thousands of years into North Florida's rich and fascinating past, while also looking forward into Florida's ever-modernizing future. For Florida Frontiers, I'm historian Ben DiBiase.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture. Listen to archived editions of this program. Watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Reflections of the way life used to be. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, you and I have had many conversations about black history. What roles do public museums and archives play in the presentation of black history? Well, it's no secret that public archives and museums have neglected black history. The larger institutions were established in the age of segregation and did not consider the history of black communities and decisions regarding collection accession. Black colleges, of course, developed archives, but time and funding often limited their ability to expand their holdings. In the last two decades, museum curators and archivists at all public institutions have assessed their collections and developed plans for addressing the inequality in their collection holdings. As universities train students to take positions in museums and archives, they are cognizant of the need to be inclusive in collection development. So black history is being preserved now, but how was it preserved in the past? Families, fraternal organizations, and churches played pivotal roles in preserving local history. Stories were passed through the generations as parents and grandparents passed along tales of individuals and events important to the family. The names of succeeding generations were entered into family Bibles, and fraternal organizations and churches recorded the social work of the communities and the festivals and parades and picnics and dances that were part of daily life. The decennial census recorded information about individual households, and court records told the stories of conflict and crime within the communities. There are a growing number of black history museums and cultural centers across Florida. Can you talk about some of those? Yes, many of the recent museums of black history owe their origins to the work of black women of the baby boom generation. These women recognize the importance of preserving the images, documents, and artifacts of black community and use their own resources to ensure that they were not lost. I'll provide three examples from Central Florida, but these women can be found throughout Florida and the South. The three women I'll highlight today are Frances Coleman Oliver from the community of Goldsboro and Audrey Reichert and Carol Mundy from Orlando. If not for Frances Coleman Oliver, it's unlikely the Goldsboro Museum would exist. For those not familiar with Goldsboro, it was founded in 1891 by William Clark, the brother of Joseph Clark, the founder of Eatonville in Orange County. The incorporated town of Goldsboro was home to laborers, railroad workers, and itinerant farm workers. Store owners like William Clark served the needs of the black residents of the community. In 1911, the Florida legislature, under the prodding of the former Sanford mayor, Forrest Lake, rescinded the charter of Goldsboro, and the community became part of Sanford. Ms. Oliver, a teacher in Sanford schools, collected images and artifacts detailing Goldsboro history for over 40 years. In 2009, using her pension money, she organized the Goldsboro Westside Historical Association, and two years later, 
on the 100th anniversary of the rescinding of the town charter, the Goldsboro Museum opened. Francis Oliver's work and dedication to the history of the community continues to grow, and the museum now occupies several buildings and has moved into the digital age to bring history to the people, as her niece, Pasha Baker, the current director, has said. Jones High School in Orlando has a storied history. Unlike many black high schools, it survived integration and continues as a vibrant center of learning. Audrey Reichert graduated from Jones High School, went to college, and returned to teach English at the school. When she finally retired from Valencia Community College, she returned to Jones and established a museum in the high school. Filled with photographs, yearbooks, sports and band trophies, and other memorabilia, the museum connects current students with the lives of those who came before them. One set of artifacts that are of particular interest are the images and tapes associated with the Jones High School Band and its longtime director, James Chief Wilson. The artifacts form the basis for a documentary film, Marching Forward, produced by University of Central Florida faculty and students. The film tells the story of the lifelong friendship forged between Chief Wilson and Dalbert Kiefner, the director of the White Edgewater High School Band, in 1964, when the two bands appeared at the New York World's Fair. Carol Mundy was one of the early black flight attendants for American Airlines. Her mother owned an antique store in Ohio, and Ms. Mundy knew the value of history. During her travels across the country, she collected images, documents, and artifacts of black life. Over the years, her collection grew to occupy several storage units. Determined to archive her collection in the most professional way, she attended workshops and courses provided by the Smithsonian Museum of American History and learned the techniques of organization and documentation. As she explained in an oral history, her grown children began to press her to make permanent arrangements for her collection. In 2014, she donated more than 5,000 images, documents, and artifacts to special collections at the University of Central Florida. The preservation of black history owes much to these women and others like them who saw the need to collect the artifacts of daily life and keep them safe for future generations and use their own resources to do just that. Interesting as always. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation is working to save endangered historic buildings in downtown Jacksonville. Holly Baker is archivist for the Library of Florida History in Cocoa and public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society. Each year, the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation presents the 11 to save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. In 2020, Downtown Jacksonville National Register Historic District was featured on the 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and the chair of the 11 to Save Committee with the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. Jacksonville was established a planet as a city in 1822 and incorporated in 1832. 
After the Civil War, it became uh, Florida's one of Florida's largest ports, primarily because it was a location where the railroads first uh, connected into Florida from the north. And from this railroad hub is kind of where railroad south to Miami, Key West, Tampa, all that kind of grew out of that. So even today, Jacksonville as an industrial logistics center is still Florida's premier center. Over 80% of the state's freight and rail traffic still cross through downtown every day. Jacksonville's architectural history is unique due to a 1901 fire that burned most of the buildings in the downtown area. After the fire of 1901, architects from New York, Henry John Clutho and M.H. Hubbard, helped rebuild downtown Jacksonville, ushering in an architectural renaissance in the city. Jacksonville was the first major urban metropolis, I guess, in the state of Florida. So it's got a, a historic district of buildings that you really don't see in a concentrated collection across the rest of the state from a variety of architectural styles that date back to the late 19th century. Prior to being on the list or earlier this year, there had been a number of demolitions. Largely, it was kind of assumed that new is better than old. So even though these were unique buildings, many had been abandoned for a number of years. So they were being raised for parking lots, uh, new developments that didn't have as much architectural character or density and quality as, as what was built 100 years ago. 56 blocks of downtown Jacksonville are currently listed on the National Register of Historic Places as a historic district, but many of the historic buildings are vulnerable to demolition and decay. Advocates from community groups and organizations in Jacksonville have been urging public officials to retool local preservation and adaptive reuse policies to save and rehabilitate the iconic historic buildings that still exist downtown. This has been something that built up in the community where every project that was announced, you had local organizations, um, downtown advocates, just preservationists, uh, people speaking up because they did really want to see this unique history and environment saved and, and adaptively reused. So city council unanimously approved the modifications to the downtown um, Historic Preservation Revitalization Trust Fund Program, which basically provides a higher level of public tax incentives for those looking to restore existing buildings. So by modifying some local policy that was not working for the private sector, within the last month, there's been at least eight to 10 new adaptive reuse projects that have been proposed. Uh, all these projects are, are rapidly moving forward despite us being in a COVID pandemic. The adaptive reuse projects taking place in historic downtown Jacksonville are saving irreplaceable historic structures and giving them new life. Ennis Davis. Really what it took was the community to rise up and voice uh, an appreciation for the history and character of this unique environment. And once the community got to a point and awareness was being raised across the state about what was happening within the city, with this downtown, that gave political leaders the cover to create an economic tool that would help preservation in a financial way. But uh, just through that advocacy now, fairly quickly, buildings that have been sitting vacant and abandoned for 20 years are rapidly being snapped up and proposed for redevelopment.
To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or online at myfloridahistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers this week comes from Ben DiBiase, Connie Lester, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.